Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Carnival. Street fair. Festival. Also theme park, feast, fair, jubilee, Mardi Gras, masquerade, and revelry. The list can seemingly go on forever, but all those words mean the same thing to most people. Fun. The United States is littered with amusement parks. Families flock to them year after year, making the theme park business a very lucrative venture if done correctly. Last year alone, it generated over $22 billion. I myself am an annual pass holder at Disney World and hold a membership at Six Flags Great Adventure and take annual trips to Busch Gardens Williamsburg. I enjoy theme parks. And while places like Disney World, Universal Studios, and Busch Gardens are at the top of the list, there are plenty of little guys dotted all over the country as well as the traveling carnivals that simply bring their rides and attractions to your door. Filling the parking lot of your local mall or setting up shop in the neighborhood's abandoned field, these carnivals bring all the simulation of a major theme park directly to you. I remember as a kid being almost hypnotized by the music from the carnival's midway filling the air. Haha, <laughs> and let me tell you about the smells. Buttery popcorn, Zeppelis, or fried doughboys if you're from anywhere else besides New York and New Jersey. Hot peanuts, sausage and peppers, malt vinegar, the kind that you shake over your french fries through a little hole in the cap. I could go on forever. If you couldn't tell, I like food. But one of the problems of a pop-up amusement park, or really any amusement park for that matter, is you don't really know much about the land you're popping up on. Princeton, West Virginia. In Mercer County, located along Lake Shawnee, Back in 1775, the Clay family became the first English settlers to take up residence in Mercer County, in the densely wooded area of Western Virginia. West Virginia wasn't its own state yet at the time. Mitchell Clay and his wife Phoebe, and their children David, Tabitha, Rebecca, Bartley, Ezekiel, Obedience, Mitchell Jr., John, Mary, Naomi, Charles, and Patience, something Clay and Phoebe obviously didn't have when it came to making children, and that was only the number of kids they had in 1775, I didn't mention William, Harry, Sarah, and Polly, who were born after that year. Purchased a plot of land located near what is now Bluefield, West Virginia. Built themselves a home and set up an 800-acre farm out in the frontier of the newly developed United States. It always astounds me when I think about what an undertaking that must have been. There was no Realtor.com. There weren't even photographs. You essentially heard a story, maybe looked at the drawing and said, Yeah, you know what? That sounds nice. I'm going to take my entire family on a rickety boat and travel thousands of miles to go live at that place. Things can get complicated when you really have no idea who originally was calling that place home. And for the Clay family, the plot of land that they picked happened to have been the same place that Native American tribes have been calling home for thousands of years. The story goes that in August of 1783, Mitchell left his family for the day to go hunting. During his time away, 11 men from the Native tribe attacked the Clay homestead. Children Tabitha and Bartley were both killed in the attack, and Ezekiel was taken captive, where not far from the home, he was burnt alive at the stake. When Clay returned from his hunt, and found his home in ruin, he gathered a group of men to go after the natives. What happened next was a massacre with many people on both sides getting killed. If you ask the locals in that area about it, they will go on and say that the trauma from the event has seeped into the land around Lake Shawnee. The clay farm after that sat undisturbed for a long, long time. 
It wasn't until 1927 that local entrepreneur Conley Snidow saw opportunity in the land around Lake Shawnee. The population of West Virginia was booming due to the coal fields, and Snidow knew that the families living in the area needed entertainment. He built a small and simple amusement park with circular swings, a dance hall and speakeasy, a lake, pool, and a cement pond that he dug himself with canoes. The cement swimming pond had a bathhouse in front of it, and they rented wool bathing suits for 15 cents, and the pond also had two water slides and several diving boards. Despite its popularity, the park was marred by tragedy, including the drowning deaths of two boys, one in the lake, which wasn't used for swimming, and the other in the pond. Several other children died in the park over the years through unfortunate accidents. But it was in 1966, the death of a young girl on the swings, however, that led to Lake Shawnee's closure. The accident occurred when a truck delivering drinks to the park backed into the swings while attempting to turn around, striking and killing the girl instantly. Though after that, Lake Shawnee, the site of such violence, joy, and tragedy, went quiet. In 1985, Gaylord White, a former employee who had worked at the park, with family, purchased the land with plans to reopen it. Lake Shawnee was known for its Ferris wheel and swings, so the Whites set out to replace the old centerpieces that were sold off upon the original park closing. They found their Ferris wheel with no problem, but it was the acquisition of the swings where things got a little weird. They located a swing in New Jersey and made the trip out to make the purchase. After they got the swings loaded up in the truck and brought it back, it's when they checked the serial numbers. They were the exact same serial numbers of the swing that used to be there. With the core rides in place, the Whites added some smaller kiddie rides, paddle boats, bumper cars, and a stage for entertainment. On 4th of July weekend in 1987, the new Lake Shawnee Amusement Park opened for business. They had bands playing 24 hours a day, and with an admission of just $1, they saw close to 10,000 people come through the gates that weekend. After about three years, though, skyrocketing insurance rates forced the closure of the amusement park, and the Whites began holding fishing tournaments and other events to keep the property active. While working on a track of land for a mudbogging event in the early 90s, the Whites made a startling find. While bulldozing the land, they began to unearth Native American artifacts. They immediately stopped what they were doing and started making calls to anyone who they thought could help. A team from Marshall University answered the call and spent many years at the lake uncovering artifacts and graves. They stopped digging once they started finding the bones of children. Experts say there were close to 3,000 bodies buried on that land that Lake Shawnee Amusement Park sat on top of. The team from Marshall concluded that an illness must have came upon the natives, and in order to save the rest of the tribe, everyone except the children and the elderly moved on. Youngstown, Ohio During the spring of 1974, the small neighborhood of North Heights was amid a crisis that still hangs over the town today. That year, 14 children between the ages of 6 and 13 disappeared, a mystery that still remains unsolved. The heavily wooded area, which stood at the back of many homes, was called Mill Creek Park, which now belongs to the Metro Parks Foundation, with Mill Creek Park being the largest, at over 4,000 acres. It was a place that the children loved to play. They couldn't stay out of the woods, almost like they were being called into them. The locals at the time morosely called them the Vanishing Woods. So in 1988, when a young widower named Richard Hemming and his six-year-old daughter Annabelle, or Annie for short, moved to the neighborhood, and the neighbors warily greeted them. It's only been 14 years since the disappearances, and the horrors were still fresh in the mind of the residents who remained in town. Richard, who was a welder by trade, worked just outside of Youngstown, in Ohio's then-thriving steel industry. It's where he made his living, and it's where he met his wife, Clara. A modern day, for the time, Rosie the Riveter. They dated for just six months before they were married, and ten months after that, Annie was born. Clara was an only child, and ironically was raised by her widowed father until she was eight, when he was killed in a car crash on his way home from work. 
From then until she was 18, she lived with her grandmother, the only other family she had, until she too passed away. Clara's sad life was cut short really just as it was beginning, when two years after her daughter was born, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She was dead seven months after they discovered it. Now four years later, Richard is trying to pick up the pieces in a new place with his little girl. Richard's new home, which had been vacant since the late 70s, had plenty of room for Annie and himself, and a sprawling backyard that ran directly into Mill Creek Park. Old Mrs. Pitts, the woman next door, almost pleaded with Richard every time she saw him that he should really put a fence up back there. But he had no interest in doing that. He loved looking out into nature. And one of Annie and Richard's favorite activities was to get up early, Rich would pour himself a strong cup of Colombian, and he would get Annie a big bowl of Frosted Flakes, and they would sit on the back deck and watch the deer strolling from the woods to forage in their backyard. They had a bird bath set up just opposite of Annie's swing set, and while swinging she would watch the birds land in the cool water and splash around, and she would just giggle. One afternoon while Annie was swinging and Richard was taking care of some yard work, Annie caught a glimmer of light coming from the woods just beyond their property, out of the corner of her eye. Ever so slight. It was enough to draw her attention. As curious as children are, she decided to go investigate, just as her dad was making his way toward the front of the house with the lawnmower. As she made her way toward the mouth of the woods, she heard voices, kids' voices. They were laughing and calling out to her. Come play with us. Come and play. Come play. Annie, whose only friend since she's moved there has been her swing set, was excited at the prospect of meeting other kids to play with. And just like that, in a matter of seconds, Annie was out of the yard and into the woods. My mother was right. You really can't take your eyes off kids for a second. As she made her way through the trees, the calls were getting louder, beckoning her in playful childlike voices. Come play! Come on! Come play! But now there was another sound. It was music. It was coming from her left. and sounded like carnival music. As if there was a fork in the road, music to the left, voices to the right. This is when Annie's six-year-old brain got to work with the logic only a kid could come up with so easily. If it's friends I'm looking for, there will probably be more friends where the music's coming from. And the kids calling to me to go the other way, they'll probably come that way too. Annie veered left and started making her way towards the music. The kids' voices started getting fainter. As she made her way through the clearing, that's when she laid her eyes on something she couldn't believe. The woods opened up to a beautiful meadow surrounded by the trees of the woods she just exited. It was the greenest grass she's ever seen, spotted with beautiful bouquets of wild flowers, and standing right in the middle of it was a carousel. Annie couldn't believe her eyes. She thought to herself, what the heck? This has been back here the whole time? The music playing was Deflated Mouse by Strauss. The sight of the carousel and the sound of the music was hypnotizing. Annie started running, circling the carousel, taking in the sight of the many gorgeously colored horses standing regally among one another. Her eyes locked on a noble-looking purple Clydesdale. She wanted nothing more than to go for a ride. As she made her way toward the carousel, a voice came from behind her. Not a kid's voice, but that of a man. Ticket, please, the man said as Annie turned around. Standing behind her was a man who looked to be in his early 50s. He was tall with broad shoulders, with brown hair and a bushy mustache. Both his head and mustache were flecked with gray hairs. He was wearing a white button-down shirt with an open collar, tucked into a pair of black slacks. Annie responded with, but, but I don't have a ticket. The prospect of now being not allowed to ride the carousel because she didn't have a ticket was dawning on her, and tears started to well in her eyes. A tear rolled down her cheek, welled and grew fat as it hung from the bottom of her chin. No ticket? Well, what do you think we should do about that? He responded with a smile. His grin was dazzling. 
It lit up his entire face. Annie, wiping her cheeks, just shrugged her little shoulders. Well, what kind of man would I be if I let a pretty little girl like you stand there and cry? Just then, the voices that were calling out to Annie started to get louder from behind them. Calling to her, but now they didn't sound like kids' voices. Or they didn't sound like only kids' voices. And they were growing angry. Both Annie and the carousel man turned in the direction of the voices. The man bent down to Annie and placed his hand gently on her shoulder, and said to her in a hurried, whispered tone, Come now, little Annabelle. We must hurry. They rushed along, and in one bounding step, he was up on the carousel. He turned and squatted down to lift up Annie to join him. She was hesitant, and a little standoffish as she asked, How do you know my name? He responded with, I know all my customers' names, and they know mine. Gentleman John, pleased to make your acquaintance, but you can call me Jack, he said with a wink. That's what all my friends call me. That seemed to do it for Annie. She lifted her arms up for John to pick her up as the voices from behind her got closer and raged. Get off of her! She's ours! John quickly placed Annie in the big purple Clydesdale that she was eyeing and dashed over to the controls. As he got to the panel, he started pressing buttons and pulling levers. The music and lights all started to buzz and come to life as John looked out into the woods and seemingly said to himself, Not today. Not this one. With one more pull of the lever, the carousel was off and spinning. Slowly picking up speed, Annie could see the small dark shapes of the children exiting the trees and quickly making their way toward the carousel, only to stop about a foot from the spinning ride. Reaching out, making ungodly roars of just incoherent noise, but they couldn't get to her. John rushed to Annie's side as she was starting to get nervous, and he comfortingly said, Look at me, girl. Don't worry about them. Look at me. Tell me a story. Tell me about your dad. The carousel, now spinning at its top speed. The woods outside are just a blur. Annie told John about her dad, about his hobbies, about how they sit and watch the deer come to the house in the morning for breakfast, about her favorite toys, and about how she was nervous to start school. Annie talked and talked, and John listened. They shared a few laughs and just had a wonderful time in each other's company. As the carousel started to slow down to a stop, John picked up Annie off the colorful horse and placed her down on the ground. He got down on one knee, so he was almost eye level with the girl. He pointed over her shoulder at a small clearing in the trees. Right through there. That's your yard. You run there, little Annabelle. You run straight there, and you stay out of these woods. Promise me. Annie shook her head in agreement, jumped down into the grass, and took off toward the clearing. John stayed back and watched. When Annie reached the trees, she turned around to look back and give one last wave, but John and the carousel were gone. Just then, Annie heard her name called from behind her. It was her dad, standing with the lawnmower in the same spot he was when she first left. Annabelle, don't go in there. Come help me pick up some of your toys so I don't run them over. Annie went running over to her dad to tell him about the amazing time she had on the carousel and the nice man. Richard was amazed at his daughter's vivid imagination, but he was also saddened that his wife couldn't be here to see just how clever their little girl is. Annie listened to Gentleman John and stayed out of the woods, but she never forgot him. In 2011, Annie, who was now 29 years old, was engaged to be married that fall. During the preparations for the big day, Annie and her father were digging through bins in Richard's basement. They were looking for Clara's wedding dress in hopes that Annie could have a piece of her mom with her on her wedding day. It was when they found an old photo album they decided to take a break and look through some of the pictures together. Going page by page, commenting on the clothing and ridiculous hairstyles that everyone had, it was on the next page that Annie had a chill shoot up her spine. The photo was of a carousel. The carousel. And standing in front of the carousel, with her then five-year-old mother in his arms, was Gentleman John. Annie let out a gasp, pointed, and asked her dad, who was that? Richard told her that that was her mother with her father, Jack, 
Richard had never met Jack because he died when his wife was just a kid. Richard said that she didn't really have a lot of memories of her dad, except how they always went to ride the carousel over at Adora Park in Youngstown. He told her how badly Clara wanted to take her there when she was little, but the park burnt down in 1984, so they never got a chance. Annie retold her dad the story from when she was a little girl. Richard was still a little skeptical, but was just enjoying the time he was spending with his daughter. They decided to take to the internet and do some research on the carousel from Idora Park. They found out it was built in 1922 by the Philadelphia Toboggan Company and was designated as PTC number 61. They discovered that the developer of Empire Fulton Ferry State Park, David Wallantis of Brooklyn, New York, said he needed the classic carousel as the centerpiece of his park, and as luck would have it, PTC number 61 was that carousel. David and his wife Jane purchased the carousel at auction on October 21st, 1984. Jane had painstakingly restored it by hand to its original elegance. The carousel, set on the East River in Brooklyn Bridge Park, was to be opened to the public on September 16th of that year, the same day Annie and her then-husband would be returning from their honeymoon, and they had a 12-hour layover in New York on that day. Annie couldn't believe it. This was fate. She had to get there. They had the time. Now, I don't want to say this ruined Annie's honeymoon, but there wasn't much else she could think of. On September 16th, their flight to New York had a small delay, and they got into LaGuardia a little later than planned. Annie and her husband jumped into a cab when they landed and headed straight to the park. They got there just after 7 p.m. as the sun was going down. Jane's carousel at Brooklyn Bridge Park closes at 6. Annie, who was now visibly upset, was only able to circle the glass enclosure that housed the horses she remembered so vividly from that day during her childhood. Standing outside the glass, across from the purple Clydesdale, in her husband's embrace, a warm, happy feeling came over her. She was just happy knowing it was here. Happy that it was going to make other kids feel the same way she felt when she was a little girl. Annie's husband gave her a kiss on the cheek and told her he was going to try and flag a cab. Annie told him she would be right behind him. She just needed another minute. Leaning against the glass, taking in the sight of it, just one more time before she set off home. She heard a familiar voice come from behind. Ticket, please. From the pages of the Register Herald, October 25th, 2015. Listen to this one, Chris White says, putting his cell phone on speaker as a distinctively British voice rings out. The caller is a writer with the Telegraph of London and he's cleared out a few days on his schedule to travel and meet with Chris to tour the historic property his family purchased nearly 30 years ago. Turns out, tiny Lake Shawnee in Mercer County has developed quite a following in the internet age. Chris thinks his father, Gaylord White, would be proud. In the mid to late 90s, Gaylord, his wife Jewel, and their son Gay, who passed away in 2013, began offering campfire stories and tours of Lake Shawnee during Halloween week. With so much tragedy and history at one place, interest in Lake Shawnee grew. Paranormal groups and ghost hunters began contacting the Whites for permission to visit. Those calls haven't just been from individuals, though, as networks such as the Travel Channel, Discovery Channel, ABC Family, and National Geographic have all filmed on location at Lake Shawnee. White has even done a phone interview with the Howard Stern Show. Everyone, he says, wants to know if Lake Shawnee is haunted. What's your definition of haunted, he asks. I don't have one. But there are strange things that happen here all the time. When the Discovery Channel filmed, White says one of its investigators got stuck in an old ticket booth and went into such a panic that she had to go to the hospital in Princeton. She couldn't get out, and she was yelling for help, he said. It was a push door, and she was pushing. White won't speak of any personal creepy Lake Shawnee experiences. He does, however, say his father had an encounter with the little girl who lost her life on the swings 49 years ago. Dad was on the tractor mowing the field, and he kept feeling a weight on his shoulders, White said. 
He didn't know what it was. So one day he felt the weight and he turned around and the little girl from the swings was there. She was in a ruffled dress and she was just appeared. He wasn't scared, but the only thing he could think of was, well, if you like this tractor so much, I'm going to give it to you. So he got off it and left it sitting there. It's still sitting where he left it in the late 90s. With the deaths of both her husband and oldest son, Jewel White said she wasn't sure how she would continue to run Lake Shawnee, so she called upon her other children for assistance. Today, she and Chris, along with other volunteers, take care of the property, give tours, answer calls, and take care of the website. In 2014, Lake Shawnee's Halloween activities underwent a bit of a change as they shifted from campfire tales and tour to the Dark Carnival Lake Nightmare, a haunted attraction that went around the lake, swings, and Ferris wheel. This year, the Dark Carnival Lake Nightmare will continue, but it will be confined to a certain area of the lake. The campfire history and self-guided tour will be reinstated, allowing visitors to walk around the swings and Ferris wheel and visit the graves of the clay children, taking pictures if they wish. Jewel White says she was worried her husband and oldest son might not be happy with the changes last year, as they were opposed to changing anything about the Halloween Campfire Week. An image captured inside a bus on the property that her son used to work in, however, proved to her that he was there and he was okay with it. And security video of the Ferris wheel safety bar unfastening in the middle of the night while no one was around showed her her husband was there as well. He was very particular about the Ferris wheel, she said. He always worried about the lock, so to me, this was him telling me that this is okay. It just makes me happy, she said, watching the video with tears in her eyes. I'm just so glad to know they're here. Even though I already knew it myself, I have this so I can prove it to others. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>